Hello, everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation Turo-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Welcome to a new episode of the Faculty Chronicles, sponsored by the Toro Center of Excellence in Teaching and Learning. I'm Elizabeth Uni, co-host of this podcast from the Toro College of Pharmacy in New York. Today, we have Dr. John Ryder with us as the guest. Dr. Ryder is an associate professor with the School of Occupational Therapy at Toro, Nevada. He received his bachelor's in depth studies and linguistics from Utah Valley University and his master's in occupational therapy from Toro, Nevada. Later, he received his PhD in interdisciplinary health sciences from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Dr. Dr. Ryder is a recipient of the 2023 Toro Presidential Faculty Award for Excellence in Scholarship. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ryder, and congratulations on that awesome award. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. I'm excited to be here and hope something that we talk about benefits some of our listeners who are wanting to do more research. Thank you. So tell us about your journey at Toro. When did you start the Toro? What was it and how did it go and where are you now? I was actually working as an occupational therapist and really loving clinical work um, after graduating from Toro University with my master's and I was taking fieldwork students and enjoyed being able to mentor them and new therapists. And I was even teaching some continuing education courses. And I found myself becoming more interested in research, which is kind of funny because I actually chose a master's over a clinical doctorate because I thought there's no way I'm ever going to be involved in research. But as I was working across that continuum of healthcare, I just kept finding myself coming up with clinical questions based on the clients, the populations, the diagnoses I was working with. And going back to that evidence, I was doing what I was taught. I was being a consumer of evidence, but I was finding that there wasn't enough evidence for some of the things I was interested in. And there were some significant gaps on the rehabilitation side. So I kind of started to envision myself and and think about, well, maybe I could be a part of that process to help answer those questions, um, maybe someday down the road. And for me, that's kind of where it all started is integrating my clinical practice and interests with the possibility of doing research. I knew that I wanted to teach someday. Um, I had taught at the undergrad level and really enjoyed it. But as my research interest was growing, I started to kind of toy around with the idea of going back to school. And that's when I decided to uh, pursue a PhD. I was in my first semester and the program director at Toro University of Nevada called me and said, can you come on campus and, and pitch an idea on how we could make our anatomy class a little more functional, a little more relevant for occupational therapists, because it was taught by the College of Medicine um, and not by an occupational therapist. And sometimes that was hard for the students to connect the content to what they were going to do. 
So I made my pitch and then she said, great, would you like to teach the class? <laughs> and so I, I taught as an adjunct. And then after that semester, she reached out and said, would you like to apply for a full-time position? And I've been there since 2018 full-time. And then I've kind of transitioned. I still teach anatomy. I also teach our mental health courses, but I've transitioned from just clinical courses. And now I teach our intro to qualitative and intro to quantitative research, which I really enjoy because it's allowed me to share my passion and my uh, research experience with our first year occupational therapy doctorate students. Wow. You're not just into research, you're also into teaching because you pitched an idea and then they hired you as a faculty. That's awesome. Between thinking about, oh, maybe I should be a part of the research process <laughs> and to coming and in the last two years, I understand that you have almost 30 publications that include professional publications and abstracts and you teach full time. Um, and you have a clinical practice still going on. So how do you find time to do all this research? You know, I think that's one thing faculty always struggle with, especially if you have a clinical practice or an administrative position, it's hard to find time to do research. So how do you find time to do this research and get all these publications out? Well, I appreciate that question. And, and the first thing I'll say is I didn't do it by myself, that's for sure. Um, I've had a lot of great mentors, and I think research is a team effort, and it starts with collaboration. We really need each other in the world of research and, of course, academia, because we, we all have different expertise, different experiences, backgrounds, ideas even, different skills. And I think research is more efficient when we share those and we work together, because going from that idea or that research question all the way to publication for anyone that's done that knows it's a long and difficult process as you alluded to. And we also know that across fields, it doesn't really matter what discipline you're in. We have a high percentage of projects that get abandoned before they ever make it to publication. And sometimes there's a valid reason for that, but other times it's that time, it's that commitment, it's that lack of follow through because of the arduous process of publishing. So I've found that when I'm collaborating on a project, I'm far more likely to meet those deadlines, to maintain motivation, to finish a project, and to get it actually published. And I'll be very transparent. I have two projects right now that I was doing on my own that are maybe 75% done sitting in a folder on my computer. And I kind of just keep leaving them there. But I have five papers under review that I collaborated with people that I worked on a team. And so even though I know that collaboration is really the key for me, I still struggle when I'm not working with collaborators. And I, for me, it's straightforward. If you have people counting on you, you tend to work smarter and harder. You have that accountability of your colleagues and you can also ask for help when you need it. So our workload changes. We have that ebb and flow in academia, a higher workload in one semester, a lower workload in another semester. And so when it's overwhelming, when you need to make some modifications to your responsibilities on the project, when you have a team, you're not alone, right? You can go to them and get that support that you need. And so I think anyone in kind of a, a research slump right now, one of the first things I'd suggest is to put yourself out there, which can be a little scary, and find some collaborators. The other thing that has been really helpful for me is looking at the type of research I do. Um, I'm at Toro University of Nevada. It's not an R1 university. I'm not on a research or tenure track, and we don't have extensive resources. We do have some wonderful facilities, but the truth is 
there's limitations in, in what I can do and, and what other faculty can do at their respective institution. But I'm also limited by my position, right? I have responsibilities, I have courses to teach. And so I think it's important to be pragmatic with your research agenda. I would love to do a randomized control trial, right? At some point in my career, but it's not feasible where I am right now. And I'm still an early career researcher. I have those ideas in mind and I'm working towards them. But instead I consider what can I do with my available time, with my available resources that's still beneficial to the community, that's relevant to my expertise and something that still gets me excited. And so we were talking about survey studies before this podcast started, right? Survey studies require very little resources and most of us have access to the software needed. Qualitative studies often require smaller sample sizes. Cross-sectional designs, right? Where do we already have access to patients, participants, populations? A great reason to collaborate with community partners and clinicians. How can we capitalize on data that we've already collected? We recently did a study on student outcomes from our program, data we already collected, and found that our standardized patient experiences were predictive of fieldwork performance. It's been very well received. It cost us no money to do that study. Some faculty might wanna think about writing expert opinion or innovative teaching articles, looking into single subject designs, or my big interest right now is publicly available data, right? Large data sets. Um, I'm doing a couple projects there that are really exciting for me. But in the end, I, I would suggest, you know, finding opportunities that are feasible, timely, because if you have a five-year project, it's a little harder to stay motivated. So sometimes a couple smaller projects keep us excited about what we're doing. Projects that are low cost, projects that we can collaborate with other faculty, with clinicians, with students, the reason why we got into teaching. And I do recognize the last thing I'll say is that, you know, these types of studies may not be everybody's cup of tea. Um, but you could consider as a stepping stone, right? Gathering some preliminary research so that then it could lead to a larger grant funded study or just opportunities for you to gain some experience in, you know, doing these analyses or testing out these methodologies or refining your writing skills or just learning from other researchers. Wow, that is amazing. I really like the way you hone on two points. One is collaboration reaching out to other people. And the second is that finding studies that you can actually get done, right? You know, so now when it comes to that, going on studies, for example, database studies or using surveys, are there any resources? Like if someone is not exactly sure how to conduct a survey research, you know, because, you know, surveys are not an opinion thing. You still need a validated instrument mm -hmm. or a later instrument. Or if you're using the databases, it still needs to be cleaned up, you know, those kind of things. So are there any resources that you know that our audience can uh, look into to, to get a little more idea on how to do any of these researches or the scholarship of teaching and learning? Anything that you have seen in the past that you have used? Yeah, I, I normally start with looking at some sister studies and either the topic area that I'm interested in or a sister study that would be the same methodology. So I can start to kind of conceptualize how someone else has done it or how I might do it with my research idea. Um, that's kind of my first step. And I think that's really good for new researchers or when you're branching out to a type of research you haven't done. I've also found that going back to that collaboration, most universities have a research department. We've always had someone who had that background in biostats or someone whose background is in survey research. 
It may be from a different college, right? And that's something that's exciting, right? Consider the, you know, if you have a school of education or a college of education, many of those faculty are very experienced when it comes to survey research and validating surveys. And so I've, of course, taken continuing education. I don't think we ever stop learning when it comes to being in academia, but um, I found those ways to kind of branch out and learn about a, a new type of research or test the waters a little bit. And also, again, it comes to collaboration. If I have a great idea already, who can I invite to my team that brings some of those skills? But I have found that once you have a basic understanding, if you're working with a team or if you have a consultant, someone that you can go to to ask some of those questions, uh, a lot of these projects are, are really feasible. And sure, every once in a while, you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to learn from those mistakes. But I think that's part of the research process, too. True, very true. You bring back the idea of collaboration. You should collaborate. You should collaborate. But sometimes it can be overwhelming for a faculty to reach out to someone for collaboration, especially if they are not in your department or in your college. Reach out to someone else and, and say, hey, I want to do this study. Would you like to collaborate with me? It can be a tough thing to do sometimes for faculty. So, so why should anyone collaborate? You know, what are some of the benefits of collaborating? I think that's a good question, and I'm still an early career researcher, so it may be for early career researchers easier because you can put yourself out there and say, I need that help. It may be more scary. I don't know. It may be harder if you're an experienced researcher to reach out to people, or you may feel, hey, people want to work with me. I think it might be different for everyone, but the for me, it comes down to that no one really knows everything, and we need each other, right? We need different perspectives. So even if we take away those specific skills and maybe analysis or methodology or a certain intervention, if we just think about the perspectives, right? I get stuck on my own perspective, my own experience, my own background. I have biases, some I'm aware of, some I'm not aware of, right? And those can kind of creep into my research ideas and my projects. And so having a team, you know, a diverse team really helps to mitigate some of those biases, see any gaps in our logic or in our, our research design. But we also need to be challenged, right? And working with other people challenges us and keeps us on our toes. So you don't have to be this famous researcher or in the top 1% of your field to come up with a great research question and to finish a project. In fact, I'm constantly amazed by our students and some of the new practitioners that I talk with at, at various events and they make outstanding collaborators, even with very little research experience. And so coming back to that idea, I also want to point out that we can collaborate with alumni and clinicians in our field, or maybe professionals, if it's not a healthcare field, like the professionals out there, because there's some amazing clinicians and professionals with great ideas and access to unique populations. But they may not have that research background, the resources, or sometimes just the confidence to take on a project. And so you have to remember that these are mutually beneficial relationships. We're not just reaching out and begging someone to do something for us. We're asking them to be a part of a project. Okay. And there's a benefit on both ends. And so by collaborating with faculty, clinicians, students, especially in the clinicians or professionals, we expand our network. We get non-researchers excited about research, about the process. And I think we open more doors for future projects and opportunities to solve current problems and whatever our discipline is that may not be apparent from inside academia. 
right? My, my experience has been nothing but positive and rewarding when collaborating with clinicians. And maybe two other real quick reasons that I think we, we should collaborate is that accountability, which I mentioned. Um, it brings more accountability, which is often necessary for projects that ebb and flow like research. Um, and we have our other personal and professional responsibilities to add into this mix. It may seem a little cheesy, but I just think collaborating is part of the fun of doing research. Um, working with other individuals who get just excited as you do about the research project or the topics, that's exciting, that's contagious. So we need that camaraderie when a project isn't going as planned and there's some hiccups. There's been times where I was like, I don't know, maybe we should just scrap this project. It's not going the way that we thought. It's taking away more time and energy. And then a collaborator will remind me why I started it and have a great idea to pivot, kind of bring back that spark for me. So collaborating just allows us to enjoy the overall process. And I think it has a snowball effect, right? You collaborate with someone and then there's more opportunities to collaborate with them in the future. They tell their colleague, they tell this clinician. And I've really only been doing this a few years, but I now have collaborators internationally, some that reach out to me and some that I reach out to. And it's really had that snowball effect. Awesome. Awesome. There's a really great way to explain why we should be collaborating. But at the same time, now it is a bunch of people with different priorities, different skill sets <laughs> from different uh, disciplines coming and working together. And success at the end of it, we need to have a paper or we need to have a grant or something to show, right? So mm -hmm. what are some of the strategies that you would suggest uh, for a team to succeed when they're collaborating? I think the most important thing is to ensure that team success is to set some expectations or guidelines for the project for everyone on the team. And so deadlines keep us accountable. And I know I've used that word a lot already, but it's important and we need to be realistic with deadlines. So we have heavier teaching semesters and we might need to consider how much time can we devote to this project and recognize how much time is required for each step. Is the IRB process, is this gonna be an exempt study or is this gonna be a full board review? Recruitment always takes longer than we want or think it's going to. But I find you know, the data's analyzed, we've written the results, the discussion goes really quick because we're all excited about working together. But then maybe the final editing and the formatting for the journal is a little more tedious than we want and takes a lot of time. So setting deadlines, realistic deadlines can help keep us on track. And then we need to consider how do we delegate this workload? Because that's one of the benefits. I don't have to do everything myself. And that's what increases our efficiency. So we consider things like background, experience, training, what does each author bring to the project? I have found it very helpful to start with everyone on the same page as much as possible and kind of develop the project together. Make some of those crucial decisions as a team. And I even try to outline the paper before we kind of break off and work on individual parts. And in my experience, this has led to a more cohesive research process and a better final paper but it also gives everyone a chance to have some ownership over that project, right? We all agreed to these things that we're doing. We all agreed on this direction. So no one feels like, you know, Dr. So-and-so is telling them what to do and they're just following orders. Um, with that said though, it's also important to establish authorship early on to clarify those roles and responsibilities, to clarify expectations so we can delegate appropriately. And I think, 
for some reason, authorship is a little scary for people to have that conversation. But we know that the earlier we have it, the better. And to be listed as an author, you have to have a substantial, direct, or kind of intellectual contribution. And a lot of journals require a statement now saying who did what. The first author is typically the corresponding author, but not always. But the first author has the most responsibilities on the team. And so especially when it comes to getting that paper into its final form submitted and revised. So I think that's important to consider when you're looking at who has the availability, the time to commit to the project. I really believe that the first author is critical when it comes to ensuring that you finish this project and get it published. I've had a lot of experiences, some good, some not so good working on teams, most good, but I feel like most of the time it's dependent on the follow through and the leadership of that first author to ensure that project gets finished. But to all those listeners, I'd really in encourage that you have an experience being the primary or the first author and secondary or contributing author or a supervising author if you're working with students on different papers because experiencing different authorship allows for skill development, different types of time commitment, different experiences. I'm careful not to take on too many projects where I'm the primary author at one time because of that commitment, but I'm a little more open to joining a couple projects as a contributing author when I know that that commitment is a little less. But serving different roles is another way to allow you to be on multiple projects, be a little more productive, and that's one way that I've found that I can and be more productive in my position. And I also learn a little bit each time and kind of find other things where, oh, this is interesting to me. This is where my, my passion is. I prefer to do this part of the project. Awesome. So someone listening to this might say, oh, that's great. I like to get this project done and completed delegation or collaboration and all those kind of things. But at the back of their mind, they may still be saying, but I still don't have time to sit and write, right? Because I have the question in my mind, I got the team working, we collected the data, but now I finally had to sit down and write this thing, especially if I'm the primary author of this corresponding author, I need to sit and write and I just don't have time to sit and write. So as someone who has written a lot of publications and, and writing takes time, you have to have that the flow at the end to get it all done. How, what are some of the strategies that you will suggest to the, our listeners as to how to find time to sit and write? That is a question that I'm constantly trying to answer. I will say that. And I think it changes a little bit um, as I progress as a, a researcher and a faculty member. But I know everyone says it, but scheduling time is so important. But I, I think I do have some insight here because the key is realizing that you don't need an entire day to work on a project. Um, in fact, I doubt most of us in academia could set aside an entire day to work on anything. <laughs> and I made this mistake the first two years. I had this thought that, okay, I need to get a whole day blocked off or at least a half a day so that I can focus on writing. And it just wasn't happening. And then I was trying to do stuff on the weekend. And no one needs to be doing projects on the weekend. We need to have that work-life balance. So I started to try to figure out what's my minimum time that I need to get into this writing mode. And it's different for everyone. So that's what you have to explore. I found that a, about 45 to 60 minutes is kind of what I need to feel really productive to get into my zone, if you will, and, and write. 
Some people need less. I have a colleague who can hop on a project if they have a 15 minute break and do something productive. That's a little less, like not enough time for me, I would say. And I know other colleagues who may need a little bit more, like up to two hours. But it, the first step is figuring out, well, what can you do, right? What do you really need? And then schedule it, okay? But it's important to think about how do I use that time wisely? Because I, I can find these little chunks, small chunks of time throughout the week. And I'll tell you my, my process and maybe it'll help someone or people can modify it. But I have that time set aside on my calendar. So I know and my um, colleagues know, my boss knows what I'm doing for that little chunk of time. I open up the project and I quickly review the aim. And I look at where I left off. And then I set a goal right then and there for that session based on the time I have. So if I have 45 minutes, I know I'm not going to write an entire discussion, right? But my goal may be to outline or write the topic sentences for that discussion. Maybe I want to do one specific analysis. Maybe I want to transfer that data into a table. Maybe I want to write the cover letter, right? Something that I can accomplish. And so those small chunks of time that fit in my schedule, and then I add a short-term goal. For me, seeing something accomplished each time I work on a project, even if it's little, like a few topic sentences, or I feel like um, a better flow for this section, that keeps me motivated. It helps me recognize that I'm making progress. And I don't feel like this is just a project sitting there that's stressing me out and we're never going to finish it. Because I think if you expect a perfect paper, you will never finish. And I even have a little quote, and I tell my students this all the time, like, we're striving for progress, not perfection. And when we see that progress, we stay motivated. Anyone that's done a PhD probably at some point had someone say to them, what's the uh, best dissertation? A submitted dissertation, that idea that we just need to finish this project and those small chunks of time really help. I do know in, in case some people like this approach as well, that it's very popular to have writing retreats. And our department tried that once. And in four years, we were able to do it once where we blocked off a whole day. Everybody got into a room. We all wrote all day. We had little goals. We had snacks and food and we were very productive. But like I said, <laughs> we've only been able to find time for that once in a few years. And so when you can't find eight consecutive hours to work on a project, you find ways to carve out small chunks of time throughout your week, throughout the month and then set small goals that continually make that progress. Wow, that's beautiful. I love the idea of a writing retreat. Um, I think these days many professional societies are also doing writing days from mm -hmm. them saying, encouraging a writing week or something saying that let's all do a lot of writing this week kind of a thing. So it's coming from the societies too. But it's really beautiful finding that small chunks of time to get even a cover letter written up. Maybe it is just cleaning up the data set, but that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I think we are on time to wrap this up. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ryder, for talking to us and giving us a wonderful strategies on how to get scholarship productivity improved. You know, it's we all want to do it, but sometimes it gets stuck. And uh, mm -hmm. this was really great to hear you talking about the strategies that you personally have used and you found it in a good way to help you increase your stay, which uh, clearly showed it when you received the Presidential Award for Excellence in Scholarship. Congratulations once again on that. And and thank you so much for having you here with us today. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's been an honor to be here. And I hope to collaborate with some of the listeners at some point in the future. <laughs>
<laughs> That's awesome. Thank you to all our listeners. Signing off is Elizabeth Uni, your podcast co-host. And until the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University System. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on the Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.